This is Publishers Weekly Radio, the authority on all things books and publishing, with everything you need to know from your favorite books and the world in which they live to bestseller lists and publishing news. Here's the inside story on your favorite story. Publishers Weekly Radio, with your hosts, Rose Fox and Mark Rotella. Hello and welcome to Publishers Weekly Radio on the web at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio and streaming free on iHeartRadio and iTunes. I'm Rose Fox and I'm a reviews editor at Publishers Weekly. And I'm Mark Rotella, senior editor at Publishers Weekly. We're bringing you the very best of book talk directly from PW's offices in New York City, the heart of the book publishing world. This week, it's a special week. Mark and I are on vacation. We are not, in fact, in PW's offices. We're traveling around. And so we've queued up some of our greatest hits for you from our archives and interviews with authors whose books remain timely and fascinating. So we'll talk to you soon. Welcome back. I'm Louisa Ermolino. And I'm Mark Rotella, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Today, we've got Jennifer Sr. on the line. She's the author of All Joy and No Fun, The Paradox of Modern Parenting. Uh, Jennifer, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. So let's start off with the title. What is the joy, and why are parents not having fun? (laughs) The joy is probably the more obvious part, right? I mean, we all know what the kind of unrivaled pleasures are of parenting and what the kind of transcendent meaning-making aspects are of parenting. I mean, for many of us, um, whether you're religious or not, this is as close an experience as you will have to awe um, or, you know, to having something that is awesome in the old-fashioned sense, not the teenage sense. Um, In terms of the no fun part, um, what's interesting is that there's there's a very robust body of social science that seems to suggest that uh, kids do not improve parents' happiness and in some cases might even compromise it. And my question was why, you know, and uh, what, you know, this book tries to do is look at the reasons for that. And I think in a nutshell, one can say that kids are not the problem. It's how we parent. It's something about parenting right now, this moment in time, that is particularly problematic. And uh, so what has complicated parenting in today's world? I think that there are a number of things, but I think the most important thing to bear in mind is that um, parents today are in the middle of a huge historic transition um, about what they, concerning their role. Their roles are no longer the same, and we don't actually recognize that. We don't actually understand. We're living this out, and we're so close to it that we don't actually see something that's in progress. Before the Second World War, kids worked, and a parent's sole job, essentially, was to shelter them and to clothe them and to give them moral instruction, right? That was, so we had a job, and it was to do that, and their job was to kick into the family economy. Um, during the progressive era, this obviously started to change. There were laws that sort of banned child labor, and this was all good. No one is, like, kind of pining for the Dickensian days of children back in mines and, and factories and mills. But what's interesting is that since then, the parent's job has become somewhat more elusive. Our sole job now is to nurture our kids, and it's to nurture them for a future that we cannot figure out, and it's also to shore up our children's self-esteem. Um, the words that one sociologist used, and I love this, is that the child became uh, economically useless 
but emotionally priceless. And if you have an emotionally priceless person on your hands and your only job is to make them feel, you know, happy and perfect and to prepare them in whatever way that you can for the world facing them, those are two very elusive and very difficult jobs. And I think parents spend many, many, many hours trying many, many, many different things to try and achieve those goals with absolutely no idea whether or not what they're doing is working. (laughs) Jennifer, do you think that um, aside from outright abuse and neglect that a child has a personality from day one? Well, that's very interesting. You know, this does not speak to my body of expertise, though. Of course, there have been tons of books written about how much um, of our own nurturing is futile, <laughs> you know, whether or not kids kind of are who they are, and we can make maybe a 10% difference either way, you know, that we can, that, that probably it's good to avoid harming them, but how much we can actually change them is up for dispute, and they use lots of things like twin studies to show that. I can certainly say that I think that my son and most people will tell you that their children are born with distinct personalities, and that they know their children pretty well, you know, from the moment that they're born, um, and I think if you're kind of indirectly speaking to the question of how much of all of this scheduling and all of this attempts to make them happy and all of this attempts to cultivate who they are is futile, there's a very good argument to be made for like the idea that maybe we should relax and try hard not to overschedule them, uh, you know, and that like they will become who they become in spite of our efforts. Like I think that there is certainly a healthy way to think about children that involves that. I think more to the point that this idea that we have that we are now in charge of our children's self-esteem and making them happy and making them self-confident that that might be like a very unreasonable thing to ask of a parent and that that might be a very unreasonable thing to ask of a child there's a lot to be said for you know correcting that uh, some children will never be happy and the best that you can do they won't they they were born the way they were <laughs> And, you know, and and it is unfair to try and make them happy. It's unfair to them, and it's really unfair to the parents. And you have to just say that the most a parent might be able to do is create conditions where happiness is a byproduct, right? Where you're, you're creating a situation where you might isolate something that a child likes to do, and you'll give them a lot, you know, a chance to do it, or you'll give them a chance to be productive. You'll give them a chance to be moral. You'll give them a chance to be helpful. And those are all good things. And, out, and byproducts of all those things can be happiness, or at least a feeling of pride and accomplishment in a child. But to explicitly set out with the idea of making your kid happy, I mean, I don't even, you know, no less than Benjamin Spock actually said that this was not a particularly um, concrete goal for 20th century parents. And he was the guru, right? I mean, he dominated child rearing in the mid 20th century for. How many years? You know, and he thought this was kind of a far-fetched and elusive goal for American parents. So finding a balance, let's say, between the Betty Draper and the so-called helicopter parenting style today, how, how does one find either joy or fun? And what is joy or fun in either style of parenting? <laughs> well, joy is, is an easy one because that's connection. I mean, and in some ways, it's, 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 um, it's such a magnificent powerful emotion that it's almost difficult to tolerate. You know, I always think of Christopher Hitchens' line about this. Uh, I do not think of Christopher Hitchens as being a sentimental man. I mean, Lord knows he really wasn't. But 
He said in his memoir that having a child is like having your heart racing around in somebody else's body. So I think that the joy is a very easy thing to find. You know, you are a hostage to fortune once you have a child. You know, they hold the keys to your heart. And that is a powerful, meaningful, you know, majestic thing to have to the point that it might hurt and almost be too much to tolerate. It's almost easier to tolerate sadness than to tolerate the kind of vulnerability of that kind of love. In terms of what, you know, how to find fun in this, you know, I think it is somewhere between that full saturation immersion experience where you are spending every second of the day with your kid and being Betty Draper where you're just kind of like sticking them in a box. Um, I think that figuring out ways to um, be present with them to not let your work life interfere, you know, because otherwise you feel like you're multitasking, you are answering emails while playing with your kids. That can interfere with the enjoyment of being with your kid. So maybe one way to do that is to be wholly absorbed in their worlds. Another is to remember that if your kid is small, they don't have a prefrontal cortex, which means that they live in the permanent present. So it's easier for you to join them. You should probably not think too much, too hard about planning and directing a schedule. You know, it's important to be very relaxed about their sense of time, which is right now. <laughs> you know, you have to join them right now. So you yourself are a parent, and you've interviewed other parents. Talk about your own parent, and you talk about your own parenting style, but how does that mesh with those, with that of those you interviewed? I know I have one kid who's six, and I've got stepkids who are fully grown. They're 20 and 24. And, you know, I don't actually talk about my parenting style in my book. I talk only about other parents. I, I established in the beginning that I'm a parent because I want everyone to understand that I have a kid. But that's essentially all I do. I just say that I'm a mother. I think at one point I do cop to the fact that I, like everyone else, want my kid to be happy. But I then go on to point out that this is probably a false god and a very crazy-making goal. Um I think, you know, I saw a broad range of parents. I mean, and they had like a very wide variety of kind of concerns and anxieties that truly depended on the ages of their children. I organized the book chronologically so that you were looking first at the effects of kids on their on their parents when the kids were young, you know, um how the transition to parenthood affected, you know, their moms and dads. And then I look at how they affected them in the middle years, you know, when the kids are sort of let's say 6 to 12, kind of in elementary school, and then how kids affect their parents, you know, when they're in, um, ado when they're adolescents. Um, and it's different at every stage of the way. I mean, they just have distinct, you know, imprints on their parents at every stage. What are the differences in issues between moms and dads? Uh, moms experience time very differently. That's one of the big, big, big ones. Um, Mothers do about twice as much childcare and twice as much work around the house. Um, men work more hours, more paid hours. So it's a wash in terms of like, it's about equal in terms of like, you know, mo moms and dads both do the same amount of work. Moms do more unpaid work, dads do more paid work. Um, unfortunately, when moms and dads are home together, moms are doing more work because, you know, um, that's their, that's kind of the way things are distributed at the moment. What that means is that moms, when they are home, are doing a lot more of the deadline-sensitive work. 
they are doing more multitasking, whereas men, when they are at home, are more likely to be monotasking. <laughs> they are literally doing only one thing at a time, whereas when they're at work, they're doing many things at a time. Um, and because of this, women experience home kind of as a video game with like flying debris coming at them. Um, and it's not necessarily like a decompressing environment. It's not a haven for them. They've got this running shot clock in their head. Like I've got to get dinner on the table by six. I've got to get my kids doing their homework by seven 30. I've got to get them into bed and get the bath running and all these things. Um, and I, this is not just like me capitulating to cliches. This is like borne out in lots of data, you know, pulled from the, um, American Time Use Survey. And every mom I spoke to would say, you know, that to me, between the hours of five and nine are the hours that, like, I just got to get through them. I just, I'm like a, in, an infantryman. I just got to, you know, power through them. And they are different from father's time, which is experienced as less fractured. They also are responsible for less deadline-oriented stuff around the house. You know, they're more inclined to be in charge of, like, yard work, which you can kind of, you can do your own hours on that. Um, women are also the disciplinarians in the house. This again is borne out by time use survey. I'm sorry, not by time use surveys, by um, big kind of sociological surveys that have been done over the course of years. They're the ones who regulate screen time. They're the ones who say who you should and shouldn't be friends with. It becomes a huge source of adolescent of tension once the kids are adolescents. Um, and it's surprising. You would think that fathers would be the disciplinarians in the home, and it's not. It winds up being moms, and that to me was very surprising, that they are the you know whistleblowers. Um, and you know, moms talk a lot about that. You know, why are they the bad cops? Why does my husband get to be the fun one who serves yogurt and peanut butter for dinner? So, in wrapping up, Jennifer, do parents ever have fun parenting? Oh yeah, all the time. Sure. It's just that there's a lot of drudgery and, and stress associated with parenting. You know, the problem with a lot of the surveys that measure this stuff is that, you know, moment to moment, there's a lot of stress associated with parenting. But when it's fun, it's really, really fun. It could be magically fun. The problem is that you still rate it a five, right? You rate, you know, on these surveys, it tends to be tell me how things are on a scale of one to five. So... You know, an experience that's a five might in fact be a ten if you're a parent, but the most you can rate it on any scale is a five, so no one can see the difference. Um, but yeah, I mean, think about, you know, the kind of ridiculous questions that your children ask that are like akin to a philosopher's question. You know, like, what is water? A father was telling me about a kid asking him that. That's the greatest. What is water? You never get a chance to think about that question when you're not a parent. You know, and it's like crazily luxurious to think about that. You know, um, having your kid look at you and say that when they were born, they're so glad that it was you who was their dad or mom. You know, but when do you get to hear that? That's just spectacular. You know, um, there's nothing like looking at your kid when they come down dressed for the prom. I mean, they're beautiful. They're standing at your height. They're gesticulating with your gestures. And they're looking at you eye to eye. And you did it. You made this beautiful person who's going to the prom. You know, I mean, of course there are moments of, like, fun and transcendence. And helping that girl prepare for the prom is probably a gas, you know? Well, we've been talking with Jennifer Sr. You can find her book, All Joy and No Fun, in stores right now. Jennifer, thank you so much for talking with us. Thank you so much for having me. I'm Mark Rotella. 
And I'm Louisa Molino, filling in for Rose Fox, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Hi, I'm Scott Ian, author of I'm the Man, and you are listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. Welcome back. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Andrew Albanese, filling in for Mark Rotella. You're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Today, we've got Laurie Duran on the line. She's the author of Raising My Rainbow, Adventures in Raising a Fabulous Gender-Creative Son. Thank you so much for joining us, Laurie. Thank you for having me. So, uh, you have two kids, Chase and CJ, and they have very different personalities. Will you tell us a little bit about them? Yeah, sure. Well, Chase is our oldest son, and he's 10. He's getting ready to go into the fifth grade, and he likes Legos and science and inventing things and playing flag football and being on his iPad playing various games. And then we have CJ, who's six and a half. He's getting ready to go into the first grade. And CJ, as he explains it, is a boy who only likes girl things and wants to be treated like a girl. So he's really into Monster High, painting his nails, wearing, dancing around in his skirts and going on the trampoline to watch his skirts bounce as he bounces, and um, wants to be a makeup artist when he grows up. Um, so so CJ still uses him and, uh, and he as pronouns and uh, still thinks of himself as a boy. Yes, he prefers the masculine pronouns. Actually, when people use feminine pronouns with him, he corrects them and, get, and gets upset. So he knows he's a boy, and he likes his boy body, and he doesn't want to change that. He doesn't want a girl body or to be a girl. He just wants to like everything that girls like and be treated like a girl. Did CJ always go by his initials, or is that uh, a gender-neutral name? Uh, so is it part of your effort to give CJ lots of room for self-expression? or You know, some people in our family have always called him by his initials. And so, yeah, I mean, I guess I've actually never even thought about that, but it is gender-neutral. And, you know, how, how have relatives and friends and teachers been? Have they been respectful of CJ's gender expression? And did you have to do a lot of educating? We do tend to have to educate teachers a lot. They're usually not used to, most of them say they've never had a gender nonconforming child in their class, which probably isn't the case, but that child probably wasn't out mm-hmm. as gender nonconforming. So teachers, I found, are very open once we explain it to them, and I can provide them with lots of information that I found on my own. So teachers are usually pretty open to it. School administration, like the administration level of principal or vice principal or superintendent, aren't always as open. Um, I think we're seen as a little bit of a liability. And then relatives, some relatives have surprised us with how amazing they've been, and then some have surprised us with how disappointing that they can be. Hmm. And you mentioned a lot of information you found on your own. How did you go about educating yourself? Well, that's part of the reason why I started the blog. So when CJ first started playing with girl toys or wearing girl clothes around the house, I think like any other mom from my generation, I went straight to the internet to look for answers. Mm -hmm. And I couldn't find any mommy blogs about raising a son like this, an effeminate son. And then I went to popular parenting websites and I couldn't find any sections on those websites that were dedicated to raising a son like mine. So then I just went to Google and started Googling every phrase or, you know, sentence that I could think of, and I couldn't find anything. So I felt like I found this gaping hole in the Internet. So I was complaining to my brother and my friends about how I couldn't find any information about raising, you know, a little boy who was a girl at heart, and they said, well, you should start it. You should start a blog like this. You can't be the only person looking for information like this. And so 
after months and months of thinking about it and hesitating and procrastinating, I did it. I started my blog, Raising My Rainbow. And how did the blog turn into a book? So about a year after the blog had been up, so I'd been writing for a year, and I'd been writing twice a week, and it was around um, the holiday times. I was just exhausted, and I thought, you know what, I've done it for a year. I think I'm going to stop. And my husband said, you can't stop now. Hmm. You can't. You absolutely cannot stop now because I was getting a lot of feedback and a lot of readers. And um, that's right around the time when I was approached to write a book. An agent actually found me through someone had left um, a link to my blog on a popular pop culture website. She found it through a link there, and and then she contacted me. And um, on CJ's fifth birthday, exactly, is when I signed my book deal. Very nice. You say CJ is a, a, a boy who likes girl stuff, and he, he wants to be treated like a girl, but can you talk a little bit about how that identity emerged and how maybe it's shifted over time? Yeah, definitely. You know, gender is a fluid thing, which I didn't know to begin with, but um, so he's been fluid throughout um, the last couple of years. So he originally, it all started because he found a Barbie that I had in the back of my closet, and up until that point, and he was two and a half. Up until that point, he had just been getting hand-me-downs from his older brother. So it was trains and trucks and mm-hmm. balls and things like that. And he would kind of play with things but not be overly, like he was never going through a phase like our older son had where, where it was Thomas the Tank Engines or Bob the Builder. Or, you know, he went through these really distinct phases of things that he liked. And CJ never went through those. He was certainly a happy child, but nothing, like, really spoke to him until he found that Barbie. And... I mean, she did not leave his grip for weeks and months, and she <laughs> still have Barbies all around the house now. So that, and then about six months later, right around there, is when he started wearing my clothes around the house, or he would wear one of my tank tops as a dress and mm-hmm. play around in my heels. So that's how it all started, and we didn't know what it meant, and we naively thought his effeminacy was going was meant that he was going to be gay. And because I didn't know the differences between sex, gender, and sexuality. Mm-hmm. And so um, then we realized he was gender nonconforming, and there have been times when we thought he is transgender. But we really don't know. We, you know part of this parenting journey is getting used to not having the answers. And so in the opening of the book, you describe him changing out of masculine school clothes and into feminine dress-up clothes when he gets home. Uh, and he obviously does this with a, a sigh of relief. And by the end of the book, CJ is experimenting with wearing feminine clothes to school, wearing a skirt or Little Mermaid pajamas. What shifted your feelings on whether to allow or encourage him to wear feminine clothes out of the house? Well, and he does, he largely self-edits. He likes to wear the most effeminate things from the boys' section. So luckily for me, those things are usually on sale because no other boy wanted to wear them. But they'll be super skinny jeans Mm -hmm. or purple, pink T-shirts, V-necks, polos. um, And he does wear girl shoes and girl socks. But every once in a while, he, you know, feels a little bit more daring and likes to wear his girl clothes out of the house. What we really had... We had to come to terms with what was bothering us when he did that, when he dressed like a girl or wore an item of girl clothing out of the house, and we realized it was we were afraid what other people would think or say, and as soon as we realized that, we couldn't stand that about ourselves, because we can't parent our child based on trying to make other people and strangers feel comfortable. We have to try to make our child feel comfortable. We can't worry about what other people think, and when you parent based on worrying about what other people will think... I think you start to do it all wrong. Hmm. How have CJ's 
own friends and kids his own age uh, handled this? Well, a lot of his friends are family friends that we've all raised. You know, they're our friends from college, and we're all raising our children together, and they see each other all the time, and CJ is CJ to them. They don't know any different. At one point, he'd been growing his hair out long, and he wanted it, he wanted it short like a boy. So I took him, and we got his hair cut, and they were really disturbed, these little kids that he had grown up with, mm. because that wasn't CJ. CJ has long hair like a girl. So... They only know CJ as CJ, and they love him, and he's met all of his friends at school are girls, and he came out to them. It just happened to be on National Coming Out Day this last October, and he told them, I'm gender nonconforming, I like girl stuff, and I want to be I want to be your friend, I want to be one of the girls, and they were all like, okay, because they're five, and they're so innocent. <laughs> That's wonderful. And how did he decide he wanted to be a makeup artist? <laughs> Well, for a long time, he wanted to do hair, so he wanted to be a hairstylist. That was for about a good year or two, and so we bought him a mannequin head for Christmas with real hair so that he could, you know, that I would obviously help him, but he could use the curling iron or the flat iron on, and he could do her hair, but then he realized she had a face, and he wanted to do her makeup as well, and so, you know, we bought this mannequin head so that he could practice doing hair, and that's when he discovered he wanted to be a makeup artist instead. Now, the subtitle to your book says these are your adventures, and that makes raising a gender-creative kid sound kind of challenging but fun. But on the other hand, at the end, you say parenting is hard as hell. So um, tell us a little bit, what are the best and the hardest parts of being one of CJ's parents? Well, that's one thing. We had to also get to the point where we saw the fun in it, because for a while it didn't feel like fun. And I don't ever want my children to know that it's hard to parent them or not fun. But there are definitely challenges, the worries for his safety. There are a lot of people in this world who would like to harm him, either, you know, just emotionally or physically mm-hmm. for being the way that he is. So I worry constantly about his safety. That's a huge struggle for both for me and my husband. Um, I worry about people just trying to dull his sparkle. He's really, really a fun, great, creative kid. And I worry about those people who won't cherish that and... Um, find it to have the value that we do. So it's a struggle. I worry about how rude people can be to him, and I don't want anyone to tear him down. And then the adventures are, it really is fun. Once you step back and you let go of a lot of the anxiety, he's so much fun. He has different walks. He has a rock star walk and a fashionista walk, and he likes to do different walks and twirl and, like I said, jump on the trampoline to watch his skirt flip up and hula Mm -hmm. hoop and for him, like life is really as it should be for any six-year-old. It's really about having fun. Do you think life gets easier or harder uh, for you or for CJ as he becomes a teen and then an adult? And how I do think you it s- gets harder. That's yeah. another reason why I'm so set on having fun and seeing the joy in it now. Because as with any child, you start to lose that as you grow up. And so, yeah, I worry about teasing and bullying, especially. I know, you know, I was kind of dreading him going into high school, but I've heard that middle school can be even worse these days. So Mm -hmm. I worry with the start of each new school year, it's new worries. He's going into first grade, and now I'm already starting to worry about going into the upper grades of elementary school and then junior high and high school. And um, is he going to, I don't know where you live, but is he going to be able to stay with the same friends throughout that? Or is he going to have to keep shifting into new social groups and sort of coming out again and again? He should be able to stay with the same group of friends. It's hard. We go to a very, very large elementary school. Mm -hmm. 
Um, it's bigger than some high schools. And so he won't always have the same peer group in his class, but he'll be able to see them out on the playground and at lunch. And hopefully, you know, a few of them each year will be in, in his class. And, you know, people like you are putting a lot of information out there now about being accepting, being supportive. Do you feel that um, in general, broader cultural approaches, social approaches to gender expression are, are going to change and improve? Do you, do you see the world trending more towards acceptance and support in general? I hope so. I mean, there's definitely a new civil rights movement going on as far as LGBTQ rights are, and, and that gives me great hope. Also, the fact that people are willing to hear our story and, and other stories like ours gives me hope that right now people are noticing them. I hope that it encourages a, a long-going conversation so that people can get educated and that people realize that gender is fluid. And if the entire world, if everyone was either hyper-masculine or hyper-feminine, you know, this would be, it, it would be a boring place. The people are in the middle, and that's where... Um, and that's where most people feel comfortable is more towards the middle than either end of the spectrum. What do you hope to accomplish with the book? Is this more for you and for your family and for getting this out, or do you, do you hope to raise awareness about this? No, I don't feel like it's more for my family. I feel like it's more for families who are raising kids like this and also for adults who were children like CJ and they weren't accepted in their home. I'm hoping so that they see that there's hope for this next generation and so that other parents like us who are raising kids like CJ who are gender non-conforming, um, you know, have something to read so that they don't feel so alone. It can, you can feel really, really alone when you're raising a child like this. So, and I'm hoping to raise awareness to make the world a better place for CJ and Chase, but not only for them, for all kids who are growing up now. And how does Chase interact with CJ? Is it the same for him that he just, uh, you know, CJ is CJ? Or as the one who's a little bit older, does he uh, have more of a exposure to, to those basic social ideas about boys should be boys and girls should be girls? He knows CJ CJ. He's grown up with him, and he's grown up knowing that people can be gender nonconforming. People can be transgender. People are gay. He's seen families of all different makeups. So I think that's what's great about Chase is that he's been exposed to a lot of that and so he doesn't he doesn't really listen to what society says people should be because he's seen all these different examples. He's really great. He's an excellent big brother. And there was a time when he was confused and he would say, When is CJ gonna be more of a brother? When is he gonna be more of a boy? And once we explained to Chase that he's gender nonconforming, that we gave him that term, that his brother's gender nonconforming and that there's other kids like him out there and that there's a name for it, he was like, okay, you know, he got it then. And um, we have a gender nonconforming playgroup that we get together with once a month. And so Chase gets to see all of those kids and all of their siblings. So he's really been brought up that this isn't weird at all. It's a little bit different, but I'm not even sure he sees it as being different anymore. That's wonderful. Well, maybe we'll see a memoir from him someday. Yeah. We've been talking with Laurie Duran. You can find her new book, Raising My Rainbow, in stores right now. Laurie, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Thanks for having me on. I'm Andrew Albanese. And I'm Rose Fox, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Hi, I'm Myra Kalman, author and illustrator of My Favorite Things, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. 
And that's it for today's show. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella, and you've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. Join us next week for another scintillating author interview. We'll also have lots more juicy insider info on best-selling books and the nuts and bolts of publishing. In the meantime, you can find this in every episode of Publishers Weekly Radio on our website at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio, and also on iHeartRadio and iTunes, available for you to listen absolutely free. So check the site every week for a brand new episode giving you the inside story on your favorite story. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio Show. 